Please take your Bibles and turn with me again to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're continuing on in our study here, but beginning today in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. I think we're all, maybe it's just human nature, that we all have about us that we like to have a, a sense of, of satisfaction. You know, there's nothing quite like coming to the end of a day and maybe you've had a, a task to attack and you've come to the end of the day and you look back and it's been accomplished. And so you can come and you can lay your head down on your pillow and just that sense of a job well done. That's, that's kind of nice, isn't it? Or maybe it's something longer term than that. Maybe it's something that's taken process over several weeks or several months and you finally get to the point where you can look back and you can see I'm done and you can see the progress and you can see the completion and you have that sense of a job well done there's a measure of satisfaction in that isn't there just to look back and say it's done it's done right it's done like I wanted it and by the grace of God I've, I've had a hand in that you know, the struggle for some is, maybe it's a struggle for all of us at different times, as they come to the end of a day or they come to the end of a year, you know, birthdays are a time we kind of look back. Maybe they come to the end of a decade. Maybe they come to the end of a life. And many times people will look at, they will consider maybe their, their place or their position and are tempted to look back and say, you know, I've not really accomplished much of anything. I've had a few days like that. Look back over a day and you know you know all those days are nice when you lay the head to the pillow and say, Job well done. But those days are many times frustrating when we lay down and you say, I really haven't gotten anything accomplished today. And we can look back and say, you know, my plate's been full. I've been busy. I've been active. I've been involved in so many things. But it seems that very little, if anything, of what I've done or what I've accomplished is of any real eternal value. You know, maybe I have gotten the dishes washed or maybe I have gotten the yard mowed or maybe I have gotten whatever done, but have I really accomplished anything today of of eternal value. Well, Nehemiah shares with us in our text today as he reviews something of his 12 years serving as governor here in, in Jerusalem and the areas surrounding there. And in light of the troubles that he's had and as we looked at even last week, the trouble that the internal conflicts that have developed because there are those who are are taking advantage of their poor brethren. They're taking advantage of their they're mortgaging out everything they possess. And they're having to sell their, themselves as their children as slaves. Not anything else to do. And there are those fellow Jews that are benefiting from that. So in the midst of this, Nehemiah, he reviews these 12 years of looking back at the troubles in the first part of chapter 5. And he's not focused on the glamour. You know, he's not focused on his role. He's not focused on the appreciation or the recognition that he may or may not have received. And the fact of the matter is if you look there, it doesn't seem that the whole lot is there. There's not a lot of glamour in the work that he's taken on. There's not, apparently, a lot of outward recognition by other people 
and praise to Him for what He has done. But at the same time, it does seem to indicate there's some degree of satisfaction. He's looking back over 12 years and there's some degree that there's a job well done. And I hope that as we look at our text today that we can see His approach and maybe that will be of some help to us. And those times that when we get to the end of the day or end of the week or end of the whatever. And there seems to be little in our own hearts of a sense of, of satisfaction. Look with me here in Nehemiah chapter 5 verses 14 through 19. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of King Artaxerxes, for twelve years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me, they laid burdens on the people, and they took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver, even their servants domineered the people but I did not do so because of the fear of God and I also applied myself to the work on this wall and we did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work moreover there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Very typical of the, of the Eastern mindset, not even from this time, but even today, that you don't measure the value of a meal by how much money is spent in preparation, but by what's laid out there before. And so he says here in verse 18 that the, what was prepared each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. So in other words, this is quite a spread. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. You know, success is easily measured in some arenas. If you're into sales... I've tried that. <laughs> it's pretty easy to measure success, isn't it? How much are you selling? If you're in the retail, pretty easy, easy to measure success. There are a lot of tangibles, but something along the line of customer satisfaction where you have, were able to develop and establish a regular clientele. People, they continue to come back to you because they know you, you do a good business. If you're an airplane pilot, Pretty easy to measure success in that, isn't it? Just get me back down and you've done your job very well. Again, there are a lot of areas that success is easy to, to measure. You can look at it and say, there's a measure of success here in this arena. What about in the spiritual arena? How do you measure spiritual success? You know, sometimes... That becomes a, a complicated and a difficult task. And trying to figure out, you know, spiritually, is there some progress? Is there any degree of what would be deemed as success? 
and particularly in the in the Christian mindset, the idea of trying to fit the thought of success with what's deemed the consistent Christian spirit of humility. Now, how do those two go together? You know, on the one hand, we we understand that humility should be a trait of God's people, and so we don't go around parading or, or boasting about success. But at the same time, we like to have some sense that, you know, things are, are going well spiritually. And then you have to ask, well, who is really capable to adequately and to accurately measure that? You know, do I measure my own? And do I put myself at the mercy of others and let other people evaluate? You know, am I as a pastor responsible for measuring all of yours? Are you responsible for measuring your own? You know, who, who's got the, the, the direction to discern spiritual success? It's kind of tough, isn't it? It's a hard call. And, you know, we can go from day to day and even throughout a day we have some sense of a success and then, you know, this really hasn't been as good as I thought. Especially as quickly as things may turn in our own hearts. I hope that Nehemiah in our text here can be of some help to us. Because, again, we've come to a place where Nehemiah is bringing something of a review. It's, it's, it seems, as Nehemiah is writing in this section, that he's it's not so much chronological here. But what he has to say to us here in verses 14 through 19 fit with the information and the events that have taken place in chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Again, conflict arising within the ranks because there is the, the mistreatment within the context of God's people, one of another. And so he gives to us here what he's done. Now, Nehemiah is a man of, of some distinction. He's a man of position. He's a man that has experienced some degree of success. I mean, we can see that. He came in to Jerusalem with a goal, with a vision of seeing this wall being built up. And he can actually look and he can see it's happening. There's some success. But how is he willing to view himself in all this and to really have a sense of, of satisfaction? You know, interestingly enough, as he records to us the events of, of his own experience, or this is what I have done, he records to us what I would call elements of servanthood. Elements of servanthood. In other words, it's almost as if Nehemiah is saying to us, to those who read this text, I see myself as a servant. I see myself as a servant. You know, and likewise us, for us, with Him. You know, we're servants of God. And then we learn to find our satisfaction in what we do for Him and for others. And I want us to consider this morning being servants in God's kingdom and how that, what that looks like and how it pans out, especially in relationship to other people. Again, because that's what He's had to deal with in the first part of the chapter. There's a breakdown in relationships. This has been His approach. This is how he has seen himself. And may God give us the grace to see ourselves with that same spirit. First of all, to see himself and to see ourselves as servants of God and men. 
servants of God and men, and in light of that, willing to sacrifice. Again, Nehemiah, he's a man of position. He tells us in verse 14, he's a governor. He comes in an official capacity as he's sent forth by, by King Artaxerxes. He's not only a man of position, he also is a man in this position with precedent in policy. Look at verse 15, what he tells us here. There were those who served as governors before him. And look at the precedent that's been laid down. The precedent that's been laid down for him to follow. He can rightly follow in their steps. Verse 15, The former governors who were before me, they laid burdens on the people. Well, they're used to this. So I can come and lay a few burdens on the people myself. And he took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. So he's got precedent that's gone before him of this is what governors do. Governors, they benefit from the success and from the provision of the people they govern over. And he tells us in the last part of verse 14, he says, For these twelve years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. In other words, there was a certain amount that was expected that would be provided by these people. That's his allowance as the governor, just as we expect to pay taxes, to make provision for those who serve in government. He says, in these 12 years as governor, he did not receive his food allowance. Why is that? He breaks it down to us for two reasons. First of all, he sees himself as a servant of God. Verse 15. Again, look at the very end of the verse. I did not do this. I did not do what the former governors did. My servants, incidentally, didn't do as their servants did. I did not do so because of the fear of God. Those are familiar words, aren't they? If you were here last Sunday, look back in verse 9. When he rebukes those who are taking advantage of their poor brethren, their fellow Jews, he says in verse 9, the thing which you're doing is not good. The thing you're doing is wrong. Should you not walk in... In the fear of our God. As we considered last week, walking together in the fear of God. Should he walk in the fear of God? And he says down of himself, as he gets down to verse 15, I did not do this. I did not do what the former governors did. I did not do what even would have been allowed to me. What would have been expected to receive my allowance. The reason being because I see myself as a servant of God, I walk in the fear of God, just as I have called you to do. He's a servant of God. He's a man who recognizes that he's been commissioned. He's been called by God for this task. He hasn't made this position for himself. And such a calling, it influences his actions. It influences his decisions. And such a calling requires that he demonstrates something of God's character. It demonstrates God's character of compassion. God's character of mercy. God's character of grace. So I didn't do this because of the fear of God. That was one reason he gives. But he also gives another reason. Of course, the example set there in verse 15. But look over in, in verse 18. As he speaks of that which he prepared each day. And he said, look at the very last part of the verse. He says, yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance. In other words, I wasn't requiring that 
provision be made by those who were under my area of rule. I did not demand this governor's food allowance for this reason, because the servitude was heavy on this people. The servitude was heavy on this people. He said in verse 15, the former governors who were before me, what did they do? They laid burdens on the people. And they took from them the bread and the wine, the shekels of silver, and even their servants. Even the servants of these former governors, they domineered. Why is it that Nehemiah didn't do what they did? Because he saw himself as a servant of men. See, Nehemiah's position in his mind, it's not perceived as something for personal gain, but for service, even to the point of great personal sacrifice. He's not, he's not requiring this food allowance be taken up, be given to him. So what's he doing? He's footing the bill himself. He's not following the precedent of those who have gone before him. He's taking care of it himself. And then he tells to us in verse 17, this is what it means. That there are 150 Jews and officials that I feed on a regular basis that are at my table. Besides those who come from the nations that are around us, you know, an entourage of, of visiting groups may come from another place and they come and, and I take care of them. I don't, I don't require that they be taken from, again, from the people. Why? Because he sees himself and he sees his position as something that he has been given to be a servant of the people. So he says to them, I did not. In verse 14, he says, I did not, nor my kinsmen, eat of the governor's food allowance. And then in 17 and 18, I did not demand the food allowance. Well, why should Nehemiah be the one to make the sacrifice here? Because he looks out, hey, I'm the governor here. Why should I be the one to make the sacrifice? And the answer is very simply this. He can afford to. I mean, it's kind of like we looked at last week when, when Nehemiah rebuked the, the ones who were wealthy, the ones that they were, they were taking the land and the possessions of their fellow Jews. And, and Nehemiah says, hey, you give it back and don't, don't charge any more interest. Give everything back to them and, and require nothing in return. Well, why should they take the hit? They've legally gained these things. I mean, they're within the letter of the law. They haven't done anything necessarily illegal. But, see, we've got a crisis situation here. Give it back. Why? You can afford to. You can afford to take this hit. And Nehemiah, he looked out at the people and he, and he realized, he just looked and he saw people who were hurting. He saw people who were struggling. He saw people who were struggling just for the mere existence. He looked out and he said, I can't, ex- I can't, Require from them. They're barely making it themselves. They can't. They can't handle the burden here. They can't handle the burden of me coming in here and with all those who I'm feeding. They can't do it. I can. I will take. I will pay the price here. I will make the sacrifice. He just determines that his ability to sacrifice is greater than theirs. So he's willing to do that. You know, it's an important perspective, isn't it? As we serve God, we will serve men. We are called to be servants of God and 
men. As we serve men, as we serve one another within the context of the church, as we look for opportunities to serve outside these walls, we are, in fact, serving God. He sees himself, I'm a servant of God and, and a servant of men. And you cannot separate the two. And so I make these sacrifices for the sake of my kinsmen. So in terms of sacrifice, we sacrifice for the sake of others as to the Lord. To see ourselves when we say we are servants of God. To say, yes, I am. But also as a child of God, I am called to be a servant of men. A servant of men. Willing to make whatever sacrifices I'm able to. It may not be finances. Maybe it's a sacrifice of, of time. Maybe it's a sacrifice of, of great energy. But willing to make the sacrifices for my brothers and sisters because I see myself not only as a servant of God, but I am also a servant of men. The two go together. second thing we see here is Nehemiah sees himself as a servant of God among men. A servant of God among men. And the thought here is a solidarity. In other words, he identifies himself with these people as one among them. Verse 16. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. Who are we talking about here? It's the governor. He's the official. He's in charge. He's got too many things to be doing. But Nehemiah, he not only refuses to domineer over the people, which even the servants of the former governors had done, but he also works to maintain this sense of, of solidarity with them. You know, some measure of, of delegation, of positions, you know, that's assumed. We, we understand that Nehemiah would be a person who would say, you know, this needs to be done, and let me delegate some people to do this task. We understand that. But at the same time, to see that Nehemiah is one who joins in the workforce here. He's involved in the job. You know, he's involved in picking up rocks and getting his hands dirty. And it shows by doing that, it shows to others the importance of this task, the urgency of this task to Nehemiah. This is not something that he comes in and says, let's do this, I want you all to do this for me. It's Nehemiah saying this is urgent. This, is, this has to do with the name of God for the glory of God. And so he applies himself and so it's a, it's a means to communicate to other people this is how important and how urgent this task is to me. I'm coming and I am placing my hand to the plow as well alongside of you. I'm working with you. But it also shows just that sense of, of solidarity and brotherhood with the with the common people. He didn't ask anything of them that he wouldn't do himself. You remember when we looked back in chapter three where the divisions of the wall and we looked at some of the some of the jobs that some of the people had? And there was the officials of some of these areas that they were they were working around the dung gate, the refuse gate. An official. I can find somebody else that's more fitting for that. But to see themselves as brothers working together. Nothing is asked that he would not do. When I was in seminary at Covenant, twice a year we would have work days on campus. And on the work days on campus, it was you, there was really a, a different sense of things because, you know, normal day-to-day -day routine, you go into the class and you have these these... Uh, professors and administrators and even the president of the school, Dr. Chapel, 
they're there, you know, they've got their suits and their tie, and they look nice, and they're in their positions of teaching. We're all sitting in our seats, very quiet, and learning, you know, at their feet, and all these, all these things. And then we have these work days. And then these work days, you know, we're out there in our ragged clothes, got our jeans and our tennis shoes, and all this kind of mess on. And you know what? So are these professors and these administrators and the president of the school. Just out there working, side by side, on a work day on the campus, twice a year, once in the fall, once in the spring, just as an attempt to get some things done. If we don't do it this way, we have to pay somebody to do it. So we all come in and we just work for a few hours there on the campus. I can remember going in my high school, walking down the hall, and I was in the hallway for some for some reason between classes, and the principal of the high school, Dan Hare, I the man I really, as I look back, I just appreciate more and more of the leadership this man offered. I mean, you know, when you're in school, you, you know, the principal, you know, they're, they're no good. But looking back, <laughs> I have a great deal of respect for this man. This principal of the high school is walking down the hallway, rag in one hand, squirt ball in the other, and he's finding his dirty spots on the wall, scuffs and things like that, and he's squirting, he's wiping it off himself. That says a lot, doesn't it? That speaks volumes about an individual. And those work days on campus, you know, it's that sense of, you know, we're all in this thing together. We're united in our vision and our goal. We've got this one focus and it's not about you thinking well of me. It's not about me advancing my position over you. It's about let's work together. Let's see ourselves as brothers and sisters working together for one cause. There's something inspiring about that. But let me tell you something else more important than that. There's something very Christ-like about that. There's something very Christ-like about that spirit. About one who made himself of no reputation. And he came and he walked and he lived among us. And when some came and said, Lord, we would follow you. And he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. I don't have a home. Let me tell you just a little bit about my family story. I was born in a stable. There's something very Christ-like about that. I mean, he identified, he identified with the very poor of the poor. And he came and he appeared not as one in royalty, and not even as one of respectful position. He came and he came as a, appeared as a pauper. A servant, Paul tells us in the book of Philippians. There's something very Christ-like about that, isn't there? That picture of, of solidarity, that picture of being together, all for one and one for all, that we're in this thing together. You know, there's something I think that's good about our church cleaning plan here. If you've done it, you say, well, what is it? <laughs> we all clean the toilets sometimes, don't we? I think that's good. Do I enjoy it? I never have. <laughs> but it says something. We're all in this thing together. You know, we're united in vision and purpose. And this is, when we look at the facility, this is all our facility. This is all our responsibility and our task. And what a message I think that communicates one to another. I... I I hope you would be insulted if I said, I don't do such things. You know, we need to look 
I think beyond the walls, though, beyond the walls of our facility here, beyond the walls of, of our little group, ask ourselves, you know, what sense of what sense of solidarity do we have or do we convey to people who need the gospel? Now, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. You can't call sinners if you don't get out amongst them. Can you? And I wonder what sense of solidarity that we're all in, we have in this, we're in this life together. Or if we become guilty of conveying what many would criticize us of, some kind of a holier-than-thou mentality. You know, it's important, I think, to have the sense of solidarity within the family of God. That's important. We've got to have that. That's the beginning. But I think there also needs to be a sense of solidarity with other people who are outside Christ but are part of this human race that we desire to come into the, see come into the kingdom of God. And I fear that our churches have become guilty of being unable to to build a sense of, of solidarity with those outside the kingdom of God. You know, the folks that would visit the Salvation Army or the folks that would go by Haven of Rest Ministries here in town. How much of a sense of solidarity do we convey to these now, I'm glad that we send our, we, we do send some funds here on a regular basis to the Salvation Army here in town as a means of they, they, they work well in coordinating things and it's easier for one group to handle all that than have people going from church to church. Some people call here and they say, do you help with that? I, I just generally direct them to the Salvation Army. I think we need to be careful that we do not depersonalize this thing too much. I mean, it's easy to say, hey, we do our part. We give money, Salvation Army. They take care of people who need help. They're kind of doing our work for us. Listen, we can't, we can't, we can't farm this thing out. You understand what I'm saying? I know we can't do everything. But we need to work as a, as a group and as a congregation that conveys to other people they're folks just like us. They care about us. And they are stepping out of their comfort zone. Some people use the terminology incarnational ministries. That Jesus, he, as He was incarnated, he, he came in and became like us. You couldn't look at Jesus and tell He was the Son of God. I have a sense that we can go out there and people, and we can be with them and we can talk with them and you know, I don't have a sense of just by looking at us. I hope by, our, by other things they can just communicate that there's something unique and, and distinct. It's kind of refreshing sometimes to go out and do something to somebody and they don't realize I'm a pastor until I say it. <laughs> I don't know who I am, so I can go incognito, undercover. And, you know, they think surprise what pastor would do that. I'm not talking about sin, but you know, have the, the box of pastors do this, they don't do this. You know, so people need to see that. What's our vision for incarnational ministries? For us coming in and being what Paul, the terminology Paul uses is, I've become all things to all men that I might 
then I might win some. We're not talking about compromise. We're not talking about compromising the gospel. We're not talking about stepping into sin with the attempt to, to bring people in. We're talking about doing what we can do to be like people because we are. There's a sense of this person's like me, but look, they, they know God and they love Christ. And there's a sense of, I want that. I want that. To see ourselves as a servant of God among men. Yes, servants one to another, but also serving outside these walls. Among the men and the folks out there who need to, to see and who need to hear the gospel. Finally, to see what I think Nehemiah conveys to us, that he sees himself as a servant of God for men. Now there's a fine distinction between this and my first point to see ourselves as servant of God and men. There what I see what I'm focusing on was the duplicity. We are servants of God and servants of men. Both. But we also need to recognize that we serve God for the sake of, for the benefit of men. The idea conveyed here is that we serve. Look here in verse 19. Nehemiah's notion here is conveyed to us in verse 19 in this prayer. He says, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Let's read that again. Remember me, O God, for good, according to what? According to all I've done for you? According to all the times I've prayed, according to all the times I've read the Word of God, according to what? According to all I have done for this people. What's he saying here? I think the notion that's being conveyed in this prayer is that no, that Nehemiah, he sees his service of compassion and kindness to the people of God he looks at it and he says, this is worthy of note. This is worthy to be remembered by God Himself. That's important. I want God. I want you to note this. I want you to remember it, God. What's, and what's the implication behind that? The implication must be something along these lines. That He is satisfied. Nehemiah is satisfied that a measure of what he should do for the cause and for of God's glory and for the advancing of God's kingdom includes kindness toward men. See that? It's conveyed there, at least it's implied there, and I think strongly implied, that a measure of what he's doing for the cause of God's glory and for the kingdom of God includes doing things for people. So there's a measure of Spiritual satisfaction when Nehemiah can record these things. This is what I have done. And as he records it, he concludes it in verse 19 with a prayer. Oh God, remember this. If there wasn't some sense of spiritual satisfaction, he would come to this point as we would and as we do in many of our times. Say, Lord, I would just assume that you forget this. You ever got to the end of the day and you look back and say, Lord, there's some things I just like to forget. And I would like God to forget. And although we know He is He's cognizant of all things, He doesn't forget things, but as we come and we confess our sin, it's as good as forgotten. 
never held against us. But Nehemiah, he says, I want you to remember that. Remember these things. There's that, there's that sense of spiritual satisfaction. He can say this. He can come and he can say before God, God, remember these things. I'm sure he'd come to the point of many times and say, God, forget these things. This I want you to remember. There's a sense that his kindness to men is a fulfilling of his obligation before God. God, I'm doing your will. I'm fulfilling something of the purpose that you have placed me here for. And that is doing good, showing kindness to other people. So that's what I mean when I say that he, he, is, he sees himself. We should see ourselves as a servant of God for men. As a servant of God for the, for the benefit, for the aid, for the assistance of other people. That's part of our purpose here. So there's a notion or a hint of a fulfillment of purpose that's present in this prayer. I'm fulfilling your purpose for me. Remember it, God. Remember it. You know, his servanthood to God cannot be separated from servanthood for men. You know, very closely again to the idea conveyed in our first part. We're servants of God and men. To claim service to God and yet fail to serve men is as inconceivable and and as inconsistent as anyone could imagine. It's what we would call this an oxymoron in his thinking. To say you're a servant of God and not be a servant of men. Just can't be. That's the way he sees himself. So we don't fulfill our purpose. We don't fulfill God's purpose for us apart from service to people. So our need is to see ourselves as having been divinely placed here for the sake of men. God's put us here for a purpose. It's interesting, is it not, that you come to a person of, of Nehemiah's position, of Nehemiah's stature, in this society, and he sees himself as a servant. It's interesting that when the Apostle Paul speaks or writes, and he gives to us, as we have so many places in our New Testament letters, what's the thing that Paul, this great apostle of faith, this man who had special revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, was called into service as an apostle of God, who, who had many times appealed to his apostleship to make his case about issues. How does he identify himself at the start of so many of his letters? servant a servant I want you to know this about me yes he could say I'm an apostle of Lord Jesus Christ called for service and he does that he says this I'm a servant I'm a servant a servant of Christ a servant of God and because of that I serve you I serve men I serve within the context of the church I serve in the context of the world with those who are need to, to be served, who need to, to hear the gospel. So, we're set here. We're divinely placed here for the sake of men to model, to proclaim the gospel within the context of the church, to disciple, to bring others to maturity, to show charity and kindness, to reveal something of the character of Christ. Because the fact of the matter is this, God's work that He does 
He does for men, for people, is generally accomplished through men and through people. In other words, human agency. We recognize that in the church. How does God communicate His, communicate his message in the context of the church? Christ gave some pastors, teachers, human agency. Everything that I've said to you, every word I've uttered to you is not a quotation from Scripture. When it comes to you, as your pastor comes to you, you know, as I studied and I prayed over the Word of God, and asked God to, again this week, Lord, your people need a word. And I can't get this text to fall into place. <laughs> human agency. How is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ communicated to those who have not heard? Let me tell you something. It's not through a voice from heaven. The Apostle Paul is an exception. Human agency. God uses people to impact people. We see ourselves as a servant. You want a measure of success? You want the measure of success? How well have you served? So that when you get to the end of the day and you look back and think, you know, I've not done anything. Maybe I've, I've got the dishes washed. I've got the yard mowed. That's service. I'm thankful that Evan mowed our churchyard this week. <laughs> That's service. And we took the threefold approach at our home. I mowed part and Alex mowed a little bit. He's just learning. I'm not going to turn him loose yet. <laughs> I fear for our neighbors. And Beth mowed some. <laughs> service. You say, that's not... I get in a day and, you know, there's nothing much very spiritual. Have you served? Have you served someone? Then you've served God. You know, the, the spirituality of something is not always measured because... In, in its direct relationship to it being a, quote, church function. There's spirituality in the home when we serve one another. There's spirituality. There's things of eternal value when we're doing the mundane things, but it's communicating this is the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of service. There's spirituality in that. So let's see that. Well, I'm not looking for a great name. I'm not looking for all the recognition. If that stuff doesn't matter to you, you can serve. And you will serve. And God is glorified. People are edified. People are ministered to. Let's be willing to see ourselves as servants of God and men. Servants of God among men. Servants of God for men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we think so much of ourselves that we belittle the, the small things that we do. We, we think we ought to be doing better and greater. and That's not important. Lord, help us to serve faithfully where you've placed us. In the lives of our families, in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ here in this local congregation. 
in the lives of the larger body of Christ, other brothers and sisters in other congregations, but those who just as much in Christ. And then our, in our world where we rub shoulders and we talk with people who are still outside the kingdom of God. Help us to be faithful. And help us to be content with being known as nothing else but a servant. Even as the Lord Jesus came and came as a servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.